Sometimes history is obvious, predictable. Breakthroughs in technology, elections, wars, the consequences of melting our own ice caps. Things you aren't surprised to see on the front page any given morning. Sometimes history is unpredictable. Like when eight and a half pounds of it careens through the atmosphere and smashes through your roof while you're trying to take a nap. Meteoroids range in size from dust grains to small asteroids, and some of them make their way down to Earth. And this happens all the time. According to NASA, 48.5 tons, or around 44,000 kilograms of metric material, falls onto our planet every day. That's incredible. Citing NASA again, most meteoroids smaller than a football field break apart in our atmosphere before ever even touching down. They travel at tens of thousands of miles per hour and disintegrate when pressure exceeds the strength of the object. This results in a meteor, a gorgeous, bright streak of light that we all feel pretty excited about seeing. We only call these galactic travelers meteoroids while they're in space. If any part of the original object survives its ancient, incomprehensibly long journey and touches down on our little blue piece of paradise, we call it a meteorite. And it's usually less than 5% of its original size. Most meteorites are between the size of a small pebble and the size of a fist. These aren't always easy to find by appearance alone, because they just look like rocks to most of us. But in certain places, like the desert, for instance, these dark travelers from space are easier to spot. And we've been finding them for a long time, which means quite a few of them have earned their own place in history. Speaking of history, I'd like to thank Cody, my newest patron. Cody, you are truly stellar. Nothing like a cringy pun to start a show. And today's show is out of this world. Well, part of it is. Today, we're going to explore history that fell from the sky. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. In November of 1922, in Thebes, Egypt, the first step of a staircase was found beneath some debris. By the end of the next day, the entire staircase had been excavated. Eventually, those steps led to a sealed doorway bearing the name Tutankhamun. By the end of November, the team, led by British Egyptologist Howard Carter, entered the tomb's interior chambers finding that, beyond all odds, the tomb had remained untouched. It wasn't until February of 1922 that Carter and his team opened the last door to the inner chamber. Inside was a sarcophagus, with three coffins nestled inside one another. The last coffin was made of solid gold, and when it was opened, the world met King Tutankhamun for the first time in over 3,000 years. There were treasures inside his tomb, of course. A chariot, 
weapons, clothes, jewelry, statues, wonders that are usually relegated only to our imaginations. But one of the most interesting pieces of that treasure continued to remain a mystery for some time. Wrapped inside the folds that had helped preserve this young man were two daggers. One, found near his abdomen, was made of gold. The other, found in the wrapping by the king's thigh, had an iron blade with a decorative golden handle capped by a rounded crystal knob inside of a golden, elaborately designed sheath. But the gold wasn't what made this dagger interesting. It was the fact that the blade was made of iron. This was exciting, because Tutankhamun had been buried in the Bronze Age. Iron at this time was incredibly rare, even more precious than gold. Iron smelting was still centuries away when this young king died. So how did he have an iron dagger? Debate surrounded the reasons until a study published in 2016 confirmed what many Egyptologists had already suspected. The dagger was made from a meteorite. Using X-ray fluorescent spectrometry, a method used in the chemical analysis of rocks, minerals, sediments, and fluids, they discovered the dagger was made of iron, nickel, and cobalt, all materials found inside meteorites. The desert is a place where finding meteorites is easier, as they stand out more than they do where the landscape is obstructed with other objects. The ancient Egyptians knew the durable material found in meteorites was rare, and according to the Smithsonian, meteorites became associated with royalty and power. And Tutankhamun's dagger was far from the first meteorite the ancient Egyptians had found. They'd been crafting trinkets and beads from meteorites they had found for thousands of years. One set of beads was determined to have been crafted 5,000 years ago. Egypt isn't the only place where meteorites were found and considered special. They do fall all over the globe, after all. For example, in what is now Ohio, the 2,000-year-old Hopewell Mounds were found to contain human remains wearing necklaces made from meteorites, some of which had come from as far away as Kansas, well over an 800-mile journey. Meteorites fall to Earth every day, so of course we've been picking them up for thousands of years. And it's not surprising that something considered so rare and important would end up in the tomb of a king. It's not only on the desert landscape or the Great Plains where we find meteorites, and sometimes we don't get the chance to find them at all, because they find us first. November 30th, 1954 was a normal Tuesday in Sylacauga, Alabama. Around 2 p.m., the sky was clear, and 31-year-old Anne Elizabeth Hodges decided to take a nap on her couch in her quiet country home. At that same time, an eight-and-a-half-pound, four-and-a-half-billion-year-old meteorite was smashing through our atmosphere at around 200 kilometers per hour. People in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi all claimed to see it careening out of the sky. Some said it was a bright, reddish light trailing smoke like a Roman candle. Others said it was a fireball, like a gigantic wielding arc. Before it hit the ground, the meteorite broke in two. 
One half slammed into some farmland a few miles away from the other half, which ended its long, ancient journey, probably from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, by slamming into Anne's roof while she was taking a nap. It broke through the ceiling, crashed into Anne's radio, then hit her directly on the hip, leaving a nasty bruise. She is, as far as we know, the only documented person in human history, so far, to have been directly hit by a meteorite. At first, Anne thought maybe a bomb had gone off, or perhaps a piece of an airplane had fallen from the sky. Her mother was in the house as well, and because of all the dust that permeated the home after the crash, the two wondered if the chimney had collapsed, or if their space heater had ruptured. When the dust cleared and the two women spotted the meteorite on the floor and the mark on Anne's body where she had been struck, they called the police and the fire department. Neighbors rushed in shortly after they heard the crash. When they picked up the strange rock that had hit Anne, they noticed it was warm but not hot. They called a doctor and moved Anne to her bed. Silicaga was a relatively small town, According to an article written about the incident by Fred Allen, reporter for the Daily News, about 9,600 people lived in and around the town, and word spread fast that something strange had happened at the Hodges' homestead. When Anne's husband Eugene came home from work, he was surprised to see a huge crowd milling outside of his home. He had to push his way through the congestion to find his wife had been the only person in recorded history to be struck by a meteorite while he was at work on a Tuesday. In an entertaining twist of happenstance, the house was right across the street from a drive-in theater called The Comet. Its neon sign showed the depiction of a comet flying through space, which is just perfect. The statistical probability that anyone would be directly hit with a meteorite during their lifetime and survive is so small that, according to Michael Reynolds, an astronomer for Florida State College, you'd be more likely to be hit by a tornado, a bolt of lightning, and a hurricane all at the same time. Some would say Anne was lucky. She would disagree. The doctor examined Anne and determined that physically she was okay. She would sport a nasty bruise, but was otherwise unscathed. However, Anne became so overwhelmed by the huge crowd that she ended up being transferred to a hospital due to stress. This whole incident would have a negative effect on the mental health of Anne Hodges, who didn't like becoming a minor celebrity. There was even an article in Life magazine detailing her story and showing a picture of her bruise. Her photo was on the cover of Life magazine's December 13, 1954 edition, entitled Big Bruiser from the Sky. Although some couples would have been happy to receive such sudden acclaim, Anne and her husband Eugene were in for a long, frustrating aftermath of unwanted attention. This was 1954, so when people saw a bright light in the sky and heard a woman had been struck with something that had fallen in a bright arc, the two big concerns they had were UFOs and Soviets. Cold War paranoia was rampant, so the Silicaga police chief confiscated the Black Rock and handed it over to the Air Force. While all this commotion was going on at the Hodges homestead, 
The other half of the meteorite was lying a few miles away on some farmland, undiscovered, until a farmer by the name of Julius McKinney stumbled upon it. Or rather, his mule Polly did. Julius described finding the meteorite, saying, quote, Folks don't generally know it, but a mule has a nose as keen as a hound dog. She found the rock. She hadn't been working that day and was feeling mighty good. She was calm. Then all of a sudden, she sidestepped and snorted. I looked around to see if there was a snake nearby and spotted the dark rock. It looked queer, so I picked it up and took it home. It had a funny smell and seemed warm. When I read about it in the paper, I said, that's part of the rock that hit that lady, unquote. I love that, and I think we get a good peek at Farmer Julius's personality there, which seems delightful. After Julius read the article, he went back and retrieved the other half of the meteorite. He took it home and gave it to his kids to play with, until he could find a lawyer to help him sell it. Later reports, according to an article from the Smithsonian, indicated that he made enough money from the sale to buy a house and a car. Eventually, Julius's half of the meteorite was donated to the National Museum of Natural History. Farmer Julius's part in this story went much smoother than Anne's. Once the Air Force determined that the black rock that had struck Anne was a meteorite after all, they decided they would return it. But to whom was an increasingly difficult question to answer. That's because the house Anne and Eugene were living in wasn't theirs. They were renting it from a woman named Bertie Guy, their recently widowed landlord. And she believed, since the meteorite had crashed into her house, it legally belonged to her. Neither the Hodges or Ms. Guy wanted the meteorite for its own sake. It was selling the meteorite that interested both parties. According to Fred Allen's 1955 article in the Daily News, Bertie Guy only became interested in the meteorite when she heard that the First National Bank of Drain, Oregon, had made an offer of $5,500 for it. According to Smart Assets Inflation Calculator, that'd be close to $55,000 in 2021. Bertie Guy filed suit for the meteorite, and the bank, not interested in getting in the middle of litigation, immediately withdrew its offer. Anne firmly believed the meteorite belonged to her, saying, I think God intended it for me. After all, it hit me. The Hodges had no legal precedent to cite since this case was a first. No one had been struck by a meteorite before, let alone survived getting hit by one. So the court and the public were divided on the issue. In the end, the suit was settled out of court, with the landlord, Bertie Guy, receiving $500 and Ann Hodges keeping the meteorite. Afterwards, finding a buyer proved to be difficult. The Hodges used the meteorite for a doorstop for a time before eventually donating it to the Alabama Museum of Natural History, because Ann didn't want it to leave the state. The meteorite is known as the Silicaga Meteorite, after the town where it landed, though it's also known as the Hodges Meteorite. According to the Smithsonian, Christie's Auction House sold a piece of former Julius's half of the meteorite in 2017 for $7,500, which equated to $728 per gram. Gold, at that time, was only going for $39.05 per gram. 
It took Anne some time to recover from the stress and mostly unwanted attention. Talking about the whole incident a year later after it happened, Anne said, quote, I wish it had never fallen on me. It sure has caused me a lot of trouble. The whole thing seemed to trigger ongoing health issues for Anne and also strained her marriage with Eugene. The two ended up divorcing in 1964. Anne passed away in a nursing home in 1972 from kidney failure. She was only 52 years old. Interestingly, the same year Anne died, just a month after her death, the first documented meteorite that directly killed a living thing fell from the sky. On the night of October 15, 1972, farmhands working on physician Dr. Arjimiro Gonzalez's farm in Trujillo, Venezuela, were startled by a sonic boom. At the scene of the noise, they discovered a cow whose neck and clavicle had been completely pulverized by the impact of a meteorite. A decade would go by before scientists confirmed it had truly been a meteorite. It became known as the Valera meteorite, and had indeed killed the unfortunate cow. According to their own website, in 2016, the Valera meteorite would sell at Christie's auction house for 5,250 Great British Pounds, which at the time was about 7,300 USD. It was advertised as the only documented meteorite to have killed. And technically, that could be true if you're talking about direct bodily impact. I did stumble across an article from Phys.org describing an incident that occurred in August of 1888, where one man was allegedly hit and killed and another injured by a meteorite that fell in Iraq. And there have been plenty of instances where falling meteorites have caused damage that led to injuries and even death. For instance, in 2013, an asteroid impact near Chelyabinsk, Russia, injured over 1,000 people, broke numerous windows with a sonic boom, and scattered debris everywhere. Given the staggering number of space stuff that falls our way, again, that's 48.5 tons a day, according to NASA, human-to-meteorite, or sometimes cow-to-meteorite injury, seems statistically inevitable. <laughs> In cases where meteorites crash into buildings, houses, and cows, finding them is relatively easy. Sometimes they're even still warm. But when we don't see an impact or necessarily know what to look for, it can be easy to completely miss the fact that you're standing right next to one. Such was the case for Wisconsin man Tom Lynch. Tom's story begins over 50,000 years ago, or thereabouts because that's when a 150-foot-wide, or 45-meter-wide, meteorite weighing 300,000 tons slammed into what is now northern Arizona, with a force of 2.5 million tons of TNT. That's a force about 150 times greater than an atomic bomb. The impact from the huge meteorite that had been traveling at 26,000 miles per hour, or 12 kilometers per second, 
caused complete devastation for miles around and left a giant crater in the ground, one you can still visit today. It's 550 feet deep, three-quarters of a mile, or roughly one kilometer wide, and totally worth the journey if you're anywhere in the vicinity. It's called Meteor Crater, and it's a popular destination for road trippers in the southwestern United States. According to Meteor Crater's own website, most of the meteorite was destroyed by the sheer force of the impact, turning into a mist of molten metal that rained out over the demolished landscape. Meteor Crater is also called the Behringer Crater, after Daniel Moreau Behringer, a mining engineer who made his way to the crater in 1903 and began trying to mine the giant meteorite that had caused the impact. He wanted it for the iron, but he didn't know that most of the meteorite had been vaporized as soon as it smashed into the earth. So he spent 26 years looking for it, and never found more than a few oxidized meteorite fragments. That is a bummer. A plus for perseverance, though. At the time of the impact, the Arizona landscape was home to mammoths, mastodons, giant ground sloths, and other fauna that thrived on the forested Ice Age landscape. Unfortunately, anything living within miles of the impact would have seen its last sunrise. The crater filled with water until the landscape gave way to desert tens of thousands of years later, leaving us with the well-preserved impact site we have now. That's made it an excellent place for studying terrestrial impact craters, cratering mechanics, planetary studies, and even for conducting training for astronauts. Between 1964 and 1972, the Apollo astronauts made their way to Meteor Crater to learn sampling techniques for acquiring material on the moon. It became a designated natural landmark by the Department of the Interior in 1968. On August 12th of that same year, the Meteor Crater Visitor Center was devastated by a theft. While most of the original meteorite had been vaporized, some pieces of it had survived. The biggest of which is the Holzinger meteorite, which is on display at the site's museum. Although less than three feet across, small enough in size to fit in the back seat of any compact car, this meteorite weighs in at 1,409 pounds, or 639 kilograms. So when a thief, or thieves, came looking to steal a meteorite, this one was way too big of a job. Instead, they went for the basket meteorite. This fragment had been found by local rancher Ernest Chilson a few miles from the impact site in the 1940s. It was put on display at the visitor center in the 1960s. The basket meteorite only weighs 49 pounds, or a little over 22 kilos. It was named the basket meteorite because it looks like a basket. There's even a hole near the top that looks like a small handle. Since this meteorite was much smaller, it was far easier to steal, and someone, we don't know who, ran off with it in 1968. As far as anyone knew, the basket meteorite was lost forever, never to be seen again. So what does any of this have to do with Wisconsin man Tom Lynch? 
Well, Tom, a retired General Motors worker, was rummaging around a yard sale in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the early 2000s when he saw something kind of weird. It was an odd-looking heavy rock that looked like a basket. He believed, due to the dark coloring and heavy weight, that it was made from copper or perhaps bronze. Thinking he could sell it to recyclers as scrap metal for a profit, he bought it for $10. He had no idea he had just bought an extremely valuable piece of history that had been missing for 40 years at a yard sale. Thankfully for the rest of us, Tom didn't sell the meteorite off as scrap metal. Instead, he used it as a counterweight for his grandson's basketball hoop. And that's where the basket meteorite stayed for about five years. That was until 2009, when Tom was watching a program on the Travel Channel about meteorites. He began to wonder if that strange rock he'd found at a yard sale a few years ago was more than just a hunk of scrap metal. After all, the rock had shown no signs of wear, even during the intense Wisconsin winters. Tom learned by watching the TV program that magnets will often stick to meteorites that contain metallic iron, but they won't be attracted to average rocks. When Tom tested this out on his basketball hoop's counterweight, his magnet was instantly attracted to it, confirming for him that he had something special on his hands. Tom took his yard sale find to the Field Museum in Chicago, where his suspicions were confirmed. It was identified as a meteorite. But the good news that Tom had accidentally bought a valuable meteorite for 10 bucks came with the disappointing news that it was the basket meteorite that had been stolen from Meteor Crater 40 years before. Tom had at least one collector offer him $10,000 for the meteorite, though he probably could have received a lot more for it. But for Tom, as soon as he found out the meteorite had been stolen, there was no hesitation on his part. He wanted to return the basket meteorite to Meteor Crater, because in his words, I just thought it was the right thing to do. Tom turned down the $10,000, placed the long-lost meteorite into his red Chevy van, and drove the 1,700 miles from Wisconsin to Meteor Crater to return it himself. What a cool guy. Not wanting Tom to be left totally empty-handed, Meteor Crater Enterprises gave him a $1,000 finder's fee, two rooms at a nearby hotel, and let him turn his granddaughter loose in the gift shop. Now, the basket meteorite is back home, where it fell 50,000 years ago. That is a satisfying ending. Thank you so much for listening today. These stories were several billion years in the making. I had so much fun researching and sharing them with you. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. In the meantime... If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Sound effects and background music were licensed through Envato Elements, theme songs from Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. 
and until we meet again, go make some history. <laughs>